hopefully the mic's working. Um, greetings, welcome. Uh, my name is Eric Ennis, and I am a teacher, actually. That is my actual full-time job. Uh, I've been teaching uh, at the high school level for almost 20 years and at the university level for about 10 years. Um, Cal State Fullerton alum, so go John. Uh, I teach at USC and Mount St. Mary's. Cal State Fullerton alum. That's what I'm saying. You do not need to spend a lot of money to go to a good university. Smart move, people. So, with that said, uh, we've been analyzing and diving into models of faith. Uh, this is what we've been looking at for the last several weeks. And today I'm going to look at the perfect example of our model of faith. And that is obviously Christ. And the story I chose to look at was this temptation of Christ. One, because it's a very challenging story for me. This is my personal Bible study. I'm just sharing you with you my, my study. This isn't a lesson I go, I'm going to create a lesson for this ministry. This was a lesson for me that I'm just sharing with you. Because it really challenged me. The thought that, that Christ had to go and face this. And what did it mean for us? Now, we have some kids in the audience, and I'm trying to keep the tradition going. And so I know we have a word of the day. And I was trying to think what word could pique their interest, keep them engaged, and maybe scare them a little bit. And so I thought of the scariest word I could think of as a teacher in the Bible. And that word is test. <laughs> test, testing, tested. There is the scariest word I think is in the Bible right there, test. Now, it's interesting that your reaction is very different than my class. Because here's what happens when I say test in my classroom. The first reaction is, oh, man, mister, I thought you liked us. I'm like, no, I don't. <laughs> the next reaction is a kid raising his hand and going, if I fail this test, how is that going to hurt my grade? The next two reactions are kids raising their hand, when I fail this test, how much this is going to hurt my grade. There's actually become a tradition at my school for the last several years where kids will actually huddle up in prayer circles in, in the quad on their own and have a prayer time before my midterm or final. That didn't happen this year over Zoom, and that may explain some of their grades. <laughs> But that has been a normal practice over the years, is this little prayer circle. And I'll even have students that will like, I didn't think you believed in God. And they're like, I don't. But I'm hoping their God can help me. <laughs> and that's a reality, because we don't like tests. And tests exist even in our adult life. Performance evaluations at work. That's a test. We even have tests in our marriage. When that wife pulls out those two dresses, the brown and tan dress, and says, which dress looks better on me? I didn't know those were two different colors. <laughs> As men, we get one box of crayon with eight colors. Women get a 3,000 color box of crayons. And they know all of them. And then we have to think, how do I answer this question? As a young married man, say both. Say both. But she'll figure it out later, and that won't work anymore. By the way, there's men looking at me right now Go, what is the answer to that? I've always wondered. I don't know. Here's what I do, or did. I would do this. That's a great question. Let me think about it while I do the dishes and take out the trash and mop the floor and build an extension on the house and solve world hunger and hoping she's just going to forget that she asked me the question. And then when she comes down, you look fantastic. Perfect choice. Let's go. We're only 30 minutes late for a reservation. Let's go. 
But this idea of testing is not something that we typically enjoy. And obviously these are lighthearted tests, but there's deeper tests that we have. The test of marital strife. The test of losing loved ones. The test of, of children you know, with disabilities. We have amazing tests in our lives. And what Jesus is going to face is that test. And we oftentimes call this the temptation of Christ, but the better understanding of it is calling it the testing of Christ. Because that's really what he's going to undergo. Now, whenever I look at a scripture, I kind of like to read all of it first before we dissect, which is what I'm about to do right now. So if you can get your Bible open, turn on, however you have a Bible anymore. Um, but obviously I'll be reading this with you and to you. But we're beginning in Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, and it's the idea of Jesus being tested in the wilderness. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you're the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I'll give you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and the angels came and attended him. This story is very interesting in the Bible. And there's a lot of unique things about this. One, three out of the four gospel writers included, which tells you that it had a profound impact on them to, to part it, and that God wanted to make sure that it was in the Bible that we read it, and read it multiple times. It also comes right after the baptism. Oftentimes when disciples were coordinating and writing up stories in the Bible and, and trying to... Did I do something? Okay. Um, oftentimes when they're, when they're thinking through and how to coordinate the stories, they weren't always thinking through which story came first. But when you look at this story, it's always right after the baptism. Always. Which means the baptism and this story go hand in hand. They work together, and there's a reason for that. Jesus is alone. It's one of the few stories in the Bible where Jesus is completely alone. And it's a private interaction with him and Satan. Now, we have people of various levels of faith. I've been around uh, for a long time, but I don't even know what that means. But I was baptized in 1994. But I also know we have Christians here who are younger. And I know we have people who may not have any faith or any understanding of the Bible. And so I don't know what you think of the Bible. When you think of, of Jesus and Satan, maybe you think they play board games all the time and hang out together. They do not. These two groups do not spend time together in the Bible very often. Here they will. But we can't get away from the story without looking at and analyzing and thinking through our image of Satan. And I struggle with this. A former student of mine asked me this question. And what she said was basically this. Mr. I heard you're a Christian. Do you believe in Satan? Here's what she was really saying to me. Mr. Ennis, you teach philosophy, and therefore you teach deductive reasoning and logic. Do you really believe in a mythical figure who has red wings and a pitchfork and a tail who flies around and lands on our shoulder and talks to us? That's what she was really asking. And I, I struggled with insecurity, thinking, man, it's hard to believe in, in this sometimes. But the reason I was struggling is because my image of Satan 
is absolutely inaccurate and oftentimes not biblical. This image I'm showing to you is coming from Greek mythology, Milton's Paradise Lost, Dante's Inferno. These aren't coming from biblical references. And oftentimes the image that you have in your head is not really what Satan is. And what can happen, and the problem with that, is it almost becomes a cartoon of itself. And therefore it becomes easy to dismiss this. Because it's not really, you're just not dismissing Satan, you're dismissing your image of Satan. To the point that you almost feel like he doesn't even exist at all. And that's a problem. 19th century uh, French poet said, the cleverest ruse by the devil was to persuade you he doesn't exist. It was stolen in a line by the movie Usual Suspects. Amazing movie, by the way. But we almost get to this point that we can feel like he doesn't even exist anymore. And what's even more concerning is I feel like Satan doesn't even hide himself anymore. But we still don't see him. And that's a concern. Because the reality is there is evil in this world. And, and there is a personification of evil. We all know that voice in our own heads, when we have that place of, we know what is right, we know what is good, and yet there's something that tells us, don't do this, even at our own peril. You need to recognize that voice. You need to recognize those actions. And Jesus' first task in his ministry was to deal with evil and to be tested through it. That's what we're going to be looking at right now. There's one other key important part about this story, is that there were no eyewitnesses to this story. Nearly every other story in the Bible has an eyewitness. The disciples saw it, they witnessed it. This is the one story the disciples did not see. Which means the only way they learned about it was Jesus telling them, this is what happened. Which means this had such a profound impact on Jesus that he's like, you've got to know what happened here. And it had a profound impact on them that they had to tell us. And the reason I believe this is because this story tells us so much about the Bible, who Jesus is, what evil is, and how to deal with it, which is what we're going to go through today. Let's take a look at the story. Now, I said that the baptism is key to this story, and it is. I want to take note of the fact that at the baptism, the Spirit of God comes down onto Jesus, and God says to Jesus, this is my son, whom I love, and with whom I'm well pleased. Keep that in your mind. And again, reference it later. Hopefully you take some notes on all this stuff. Again, go read this later. But remember this event. He has this moment. The Spirit descends, and then God tells him, this is my son whom I love, with whom I'm well pleased. The thing I hopefully want God to say to me someday. And now he's out into the wilderness, into the desert. And he's led by the Spirit. I don't like that. I don't like the fact that God led him there. Think about that. God led him into the period of testing. Which means that God will test us too. God's going to let us be tested. We can't imagine that our life is just going to be fine. God's going to let us be tested and tempted. And don't get me wrong, Satan is tempting him. That word is legitimate. When people say it's the temptation of Christ, that's a good word. Because Satan will tempt him. Tempting is about enticing someone into doing something evil that they find attractive. So, for instance, heroin is not something I've ever done in my life. It's not something that attracts to me. I've never done a hardcore drug. If I'm in the parking lot today, leaving to my car, and someone offers me heroin, don't offer me heroin. But if someone were to offer me heroin, that would not be a temptation for me. 
But if I felt embarrassed or humiliated, I might want to lie. If I felt shame, I might want to isolate and not be around my friends and not be vulnerable. That's a temptation for me. If I felt hurt, I might, I might be vindictive. That might be a temptation for me. So Satan is tempting him. But you have to understand that though Satan is tempting him, God is testing him. Both are happening at the exact same time. Parasso is the Greek word. It means to tempt, but also means to test. And why do you test? To instruct, to inform. When I give a test to my students, I'm not tempting them. I'm giving a test to them to reveal something. To show them how much they know and, and to let me know how much they know. And we've all had that test where we bombed. I remember a, a ninth grade algebra test where there was like 20 questions and I answered six. And I don't think I answered six right. I just answered six. We've had that test where you get revealed like, oh, wow, I don't know this. And the teacher goes, yep, you don't know this. You're not ready for this. And we've also had that test, hopefully, where we walked in and we were ready. We knew it. God is testing Jesus. And the reason I believe in this is this. When does Jesus know that he's the son of God? When do you have that moment? It's not like he came out of the womb at two years old going, Mom, by the way, I'm the son of God and I need a bottle. That's not how it works. There has to come a moment for him to build the confidence to know that this is my ministry and this is what I'm going to do. And so God does two things for Jesus. One, he encourages them. This is my son, whom I love, with whom I'm well pleased. And then he also gives him a test. He measures him. He evaluates him. And he does so not just because God's not knowing where he's at, but helping Jesus to know where he's at. Sometimes we need to go to a test so that we know where our faith level is. And I think also, too, to let Satan know who he is. This is what's happening here. And this is why this story is so profound. For the next several minutes, I'm going to walk through the playbook of Satan and Jesus' response. It's kind of like looking at the, the opposing playbook, you know, of the opposing team. We're going to see his tactics and see how Jesus responds to these tactics. It starts with, if you're the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Remember what I just said. Jesus had just said to him, this is my son, whom I love, with whom I'm well pleased. Satan's first action, if. You sure about that? You sure God loves you? You sure you're a part of the family of God? You sure that God's on your side? Not sure about that. Question that identity. And then he tells them, you know what? Take care of yourself. Obviously, God, if God loved you, you wouldn't be in this situation. Just tell these stones to become bread. Take back your own desires and take care. You know, use your talents, use your abilities, make things happen for yourself. That's what he's telling. I understand that temptation. I get that. When I'm hurt, when I'm, you know, when, when I'm tired and fatigued, and in this case, fasting 40 days, I can understand where he's like, man... Maybe I should just take care of myself. Jesus' response. It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. He's letting him know, no, that's not the purpose of my life, is to just take care of myself. Now, 
I've lived overseas for a time, and, and, and obviously living in America, one thing I've, I've recognized having lived in both is just how materialistic America is, and especially Southern California, and especially Orange County, California. It, it's just built into our DNA. And so it's very easy for us to get caught up in the house, the car, the Roth 401k, the investment plan and portfolio, the pension plan. It becomes very easy to get settled into that life. Jesus isn't saying those things are in and themselves bad. He's not saying bread's no good. He's saying that's not the purpose or mission of my life. I don't live on that alone, but on every word that comes from God. He also does something else. He's quoting from Deuteronomy 8. Um, please, I won't have time to go through Deuteronomy 8 and Deuteronomy 6 with you. Please write those two passages down when you... When, when you go back and read these stories, because again, I want us to be a church that examines what I say to see if what I'm saying is true. So when you go back to read these stories, read along with Deuteronomy 6 and Deuteronomy 8. Because also what's happening here is he's recognizing this is a test. And he's quoting from Deuteronomy 8. I just want to make note of what his life is like at this point. He's led by the Spirit into a wilderness to be tempted or tested to be instructed and taught. For 40 days, and he quotes the scripture. Jesus is recognizing his journey right now is paralleling this in Deuteronomy 8. The idea of wilderness, 40 years, to be tested, to be taught. Why? He's doing it so he can be disciplined. He's recognizing he's going through the same test the Israelites went through. He knows that. He understands that right now. And he knows that in verse 5 of the scripture, know that in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so Lord God disciplines you. He's recognizing he's being disciplined. He doesn't shy away from it. He doesn't get angry with God about it. He recognizes this is why God does this, because God loves him. This is why we get disciplined, because God loves us. The Israelites won't pass their test. They will struggle for 40 years through this. But the new Moses, the new prophet, priest, king, in Jesus will. And he gives us a gateway that we can now as well succeed. The next tactic. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. Obviously a vision of some sort. If you're the son of God, he said, throw yourself down for it is written. He will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Notice the if again. Went right back to it. Let's question your identity. Are you sure you're loved by God? Are you sure that, that God's on your side? And then he takes a verse in the Bible and quotes it out of context and basically tells them, hey, jump off this thing and God will always make sure to be there for you no matter what. So much of this speaks to me because I want to believe this too. But Satan is also doing another tactic here, an old one. He's corrupting God's word. Very same thing he did in the very beginning of the Bible. Are you sure you can't eat from this tree? Is that really what God says? Very much the same way. And once again, Adam fails this test. And by the way, Adam in Hebrew means man. 
Adam fails the test. But Jesus will not. Jesus' response. It's also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Now this boggled my mind. I was questioning because you read other passages in the Bible where it says, test God in this. And now Jesus is saying, don't test God. And I'm like, which is it? I'm confused about test already. Now I'm being tested of which test I can do. He's referencing Deuteronomy 6, the, the rebellion of Massa. And here's what that means. Here's, what, here's, here are the, here's a way we can test God. We live righteously as God calls us. And God says, test me in that and see if I don't bless you. Give generously and see if I don't bless you. Date righteously and see if I don't bless you. Act purely and see if I don't bless you. But the test he's talking about here is me going, I'm going to live in a moral lifestyle until you give me a pure woman. No, that's not how that works. I'm going to squander all my money until you, God, give me a better job. No. You can't live unrighteously and expect God to act on your behalf. Because then you're making God obedient to you rather than you being obedient to him. That's a temper tantrum. That's a child on the floor saying, give me, give me, give me, and I'm not going to stop until you do something on my behalf. God's saying, no, no temper tantrums. We are his servant. He is not ours. We are striving to be a part of God's church. He is not a member of our church. There's a difference. And we have to understand that and have the humility of that. Now, I want to point this scripture out. So this is what he's, this is, this is the scripture he's getting here from, Psalm 91, 9 through 12. But he doesn't read the whole thing, Satan. It's oftentimes when people misquote something, they don't like the whole context. And this speaks to me because this is a struggle I had. Because for me, uh, some of you know my story, maybe others of you don't. But six months after getting married, I came off a mission field, I, I, I dated purely, I repented in a lot of areas of my life, I married an amazing woman, and six months after I got married, my wife was diagnosed with cancer. And it was really hard to look at God and go, God, I thought I was doing everything right according to you, why is my life like this? I thought I could jump off and my foot would never touch a stone. In the same passage, it says, he will call on me. And I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. God's not saying we won't face trouble as a Christian. He's just telling us he'll be with us through it. And there's a difference. And this is a hard thing for me to learn. I put this in there for me because it's hard for me to hear this. Because I want, the, I want the God that I became a Christian. Everything works out perfectly. Happily ever after, no problems. But yet I serve a Jesus, a Christ, who went to the cross. I don't get to have both. But what I get to have is a God who will be on my side as I go through trouble. It's interesting Satan didn't quote this part. And that's why when we, when we hear people, and even in the world now, when people bring up Scripture, it's important to understand Scripture. And we end the full context of the Scripture because it can hurt our faith, as, Jesus, as Satan was trying to do to Jesus here. Now, third tactic. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. 
What a bold offer. You know what? No more ifs, no more ands. Final question, let's do this. You want, you want this world, God, or you want this world, Jesus? I'll give it to you right now. Just worship me, we'll be done. Bold offer. Jesus responds, away from me, Satan. With passion. For it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. A couple key things here. One, Jesus doesn't call him a liar here. He's the father of all lies, but he doesn't say, you're lying, you have no power here. He doesn't say that. And again, for a temptation to be a temptation, it has to have some kind of validity that you want. And Satan has to have some kind of ability to offer it. And I don't know how much ability Satan has in this world. But I would say this. Just look at the last hundred plus years of our century. Starting from World War I, World War II, the amount of genocides that have taken place, the amount of horrors and atrocities. It's hard for me to believe that Satan doesn't have some sway here. And that's what he's telling them. And this emotion also reveals something to me about Jesus. Is this one's really hard for him. He says these very same words one more time in the Bible. When Peter says, hey, Jesus, you don't need to go to the cross. Get behind me, Satan. That thought of, man, I'm going to, I don't have to suffer if I go the easy way out. That's the offer. I understand that. I looked up the divorce rate um, for people who's, who have a spouse who uh, gets diagnosed with a terminal illness. Five years after they're married, 77% divorce rate. I remember that. I remember looking it up. And I'm like, wow. And I'm sure that Satan's voice was there for me, telling me, hey, Eric, if you divorce your wife, you can get married again, have a family, build anew, a whole different life. You wouldn't have to walk through the pain and suffering of this long-term illness. I can see why that would be attractive. And I see why the world jumps on that. But they miss the glory of God in doing so. The greatest moment of my ministry was passing my wife back to God. I've served on mission teams. I've helped other people become Christians. All of it fails in comparison. I know I'll face God someday, and I know I have a lot for answer for, and I have no doubt about it. But I'll get to say to him, your daughter's back, and I got to help her come back. There's my greatest gift. Greatest thing I've done in my life, right there. I would have missed it had I listened to Satan. Jesus' greatest moment is the resurrection. And he would have missed it if he didn't go to the cross. This is the playbook. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. He recognized this moment here. He recognized how hard it was to have to go and suffer and be killed. And Peter's response, 
don't do this. This shall never happen to you. Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. I don't want that temptation. I need to finish the race. Then the devil left him. And God delivered. As he says, I'll be with you in trouble, but I'll honor and deliver him. The angels came and attended him. But Luke gives us a warning. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left until an opportune time. Just because we have a victory doesn't mean we have all victories. Just because we have one, you know, one moment in the sun doesn't mean it's, we're done. Christianity keeps going. And that's here. But the one thing that's interesting to me was after this moment, Satan never seemed to have the same kind of swagger again. It was almost like he knew the eventual defeat came. And for us, living on post of the resurrection, we know the victory is ours. We just got to keep playing. So what's all this about? What's this story? And why was it so important to me? And why did I reveal it? Because I think it reveals mankind's failure, but Jesus' success. And if we follow him, we too can have that same victory. It also tells me that evil exists, and we have to contend with it. We can't run from evil. We have to deal with it. And how do we do so? We live and know God's word. Jesus didn't speak these words. He lived them. When he says, worship the Lord your God and serve him only, he did that. We've got to know God's word, and we've got to live it. And he has shown us the way because he was the way the truth, and the life. So as we get ready for communion, I want you to think through this thought. Satan came at Jesus. Evil showed his face. Even to the point of killing our Savior. But God showed his masterful plan in raising him to life. We take these sacraments, we take the bread, and we take the juice that represents the death, burial, and resurrection, the body and the blood. But we do so knowing that victory is assured because Jesus was the author and perfecter and ultimate model of our faith. With that, let's pray. Father, we are grateful that we can even be in this room and stand before you knowing, God, that you have laid out the perfect path for us. Not an easy one, not one without trouble, not one without hardship, but one that knows that you'll be with us always. But, Father, we must know your word. We must live your word. And, Father, we are grateful for the grace and mercy that you continually bestow on us, even through the Israelite nation, through Adam, even through their failures, God. Jesus came to help us through our failures. Because, God, you call us to be united with you again. We are grateful that you love us in this deep and meaningful way. And that you adore each one of us. And that as we take these sacraments, we do so knowing, God, that you have the power of the resurrection and the ability to restore our faith, restore our hope, and continually give us love that we must pour out into this world. We are honored to be here. We love you and we pray this in your son's name. Amen.